you don't know. Yeah, you don't know where where it's going. Yeah, <laughs> I, I and I and I so I'm so grateful when people decide to put it out there and take that risk of yeah see what happens with it. Yeah, um, are you ready? Yeah. Music is a great force for good in the world. When we send our music out into the world, we never know where it will land or who may be touched by it. to episode 10,000, nope, 12 of the Noble Dreams podcast. Uh, my name is Noble, and I am coming to you from the living room of a mansion, as one does from time to time. And I would like to tell you that the guest this week is a man named Jim Rooney, who is a music producer and publisher and musician and so many other things. And... As we talk about in the conversation, uh, name dropping just for the sake of it is sort of fun, but not all the way fun. So there's uh, just, if you could think in your mind, anyone in music in the last 50 years, this man has probably uh, worked with or knows that person personally, um, especially in the folk and rock and country genres but also jazz and a lot of other things uh i'm really excited to share this with you it was great to speak with him he happens to live in the town where i grew up which is pretty cool um and has worked all over the place on his journey which has been chronicled by him in a book called in it for the long run which i highly highly recommend um as far as listening goes this week, I recommend listening to the first album, eponymous album by John Prine. Uh, John is a good friend of Jim's, and we talked about that. And if you've never heard any of John Prine's music, get going on that. And if you've never heard his original album, which he recorded when he was only like 24, I think, uh, which is incredible, because song for song, I'll put it up against just about any album that's out there in the world and uh so so that's my musical invitation there's also a lot mentioned throughout the conversation and i'm going to split this up into two parts for a couple of reasons one is that i am experiencing some uh mystery illness right now for uh it'll be five weeks tomorrow and part of the what the deal with this is that i i'm extremely uh, uh, fatigued and lethargic a lot of the time and I also feel about somewhere between 10 to 30 percent dumber on a given day and conjuring up uh, words from my inner thesaurus it's not so great and I sort of feels like as if my thesaurus has been dropped in the toilet or something and all the ink has been wishy-washy out so anyways 
Part of the reason I'm splitting this up is because it's a long conversation and I think it will do well to have it in chunks. And also because I spend a really, really long time editing these episodes. Um, and I'll speak more about that at a later date. There's Part of it's a, there's a very specific reason why I do it so carefully. Um, and uh, frankly doing the editing right now has proven to be really challenging for me uh, in this state of whatever's got somewhat of a grip on me and so uh, and so another reason for splitting up is just a little insurance on my part because I want to keep getting these out every week apologies to anyone who was waiting last week I was away and my computer is so old that I can't actually upload the episodes from it and I didn't have access to a better computer or at least a newer one. Um, and so that's why it came out a little late last week. So anyways, that's another reason. And also, I keep, I've heard over the years that most startup podcasts um, average out, average at petering out on episode 13. And uh, splitting this up into two will get us over the, over the hump there. I'm not really worried about it. It's kind of a joke uh, to me. Also, we have a few episodes that are, in editing process and, and and I'm excited to share with you. So anyways, um, on the business side of things, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who's supporting the podcast in all the ways that you do. Please continue to send in your stories and songs and poems and thoughts and essays and all the things. Um, I've got some feelers out for people sharing um, songs and and their experiences I'm so excited to share with you that are coming up um, you can send those to nobledreamspod at gmail.com it's nobledreamspod at gmail.com if you would like to financially support the show which is something I am incredibly grateful for it is such a help and um, helps pay for my time uh, that I put into the show into the transportation to go speak with guests and equipment and all the things um there's a tip jar in the show notes and that's a really easy way to just drop some money if you can and if you value what's going on here and i'm so grateful for that there's an instagram account noah days at noah days noble nights at noah days noble nights and i put uh, posts up about the shows and put more pictures than i can fit in the show um, website and stuff and so please, please, please continue to tell your friends this is the way that this thing grows. If you make a post on social media about the uh, show, it really helps. Uh, I think people like seeing it more than from just the person who creates it. And I'm so grateful for those who have shared the show and shared it with their friends. In the musical theme this week, why don't if you? my invitation for you is to share the show with the first person that you think of when you hear the name Bob Dylan. And if you haven't heard of Bob Dylan, then just see who comes up anyways in your mind. And if you'd be willing to share it with them, if you think it might have value for them or reach them in some capacity, then beautiful. Um, Jim was kind enough to play a couple of songs for us, and so those are going to be the musical numbers on these uh, episodes. The first one is... uh, I'm so lonesome. I could cry by I could cry by uh, Hank Williams. And the second one I'll talk about next week. 
All right. I think that's about it from me. Thank you so much. Love to you all. I hope that you are having interesting explorations in your journeys through this world and finding ways to bring your own beautiful selves into it and sharing that with all of the rest of us. All the best. No. So, all right, here we go. Okay. Um, so who are we sitting here with this morning? Uh, Jim Rooney. That's my name. Jim Rooney. And you're Noah Shoot. That's true. <laughs> Just in case you forgot. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, I was wondering if you'd be willing to just read the uh, introduction to your book real quick. Oh, my goodness. Just okay. to um, give us a sort of thesis that I at least see. Okay. Well, uh, this is the introduction. Um, my book is called In It for the Long Run, and uh, which is a fairly accurate description of, of uh, my life. It seems to be going on and on. And this is the introduction to this uh, memoir I wrote, and it says, Do it your own ignorant way. With these words, Gammy, my mother's mother, Julia Flaherty, would dismiss one or the other of us grandchildren as we informed her of how we were about to do something. So that's what I've been doing ever since, going my own way in the world, finding my own voice, following my own path, doing it my own ignorant way. That path took me on a musical journey from Dedham, Massachusetts, to Cambridge, to New Orleans, to Newport, to Woodstock, to Nashville, to Ireland, to Vermont, and all around the world. I've been making my story up as I went along, and here it is. Beautiful, thank you. We were just, on the episode that comes out today, uh, my friend Meg and I both, we recorded a bunch of songs just sitting on the back porch of her house and then we each took a, a, a turn sort of speaking of our own musical journeys you know uh -huh. how we came to be and and uh, I really enjoyed reading that because it's very similar to how I approach things which is basically get the bare bones sort of fundamentals and then figure it out myself in including doing this podcast and <laughs> yeah yeah so I'm just curious though, where did where did that uh, what's your first memory of, of sort of figuring stuff out your own way oh boy I'm left-handed uh, and I think that means that you, just from an early age, you have to figure a bunch of things out. Uh, the world isn't made for left-handed people. And um, so uh, in terms of specific memories, I'm not sure if I have uh, one, except I was always aware that um, I didn't, do things the way other people did them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, although it's interesting, uh, for instance, I bat right-handed, uh, but I left uh, right with my left hand. Um, for some reason, swinging a stick uh, seems to come naturally to me <laughs> from the right side. So I would say my head is split, and um, uh, so that's just gives you a different way of looking at things. Um, uh, I was, uh, it was hard for me to um, do some tasks. Well, penmanship, for instance, when I was a kid, we had pens with that you dipped in an inkwell, and uh, and 
that we were taught this method, the Palmer method, it was called. But it was designed for right-handed people, and they would make these lovely tunnels of, of, of swirls, uh, you know, in a row. But when I made those tunnels, I was smudging them with my arm because I was going over the stuff I had just inked, and it was always a nightmare. Um, finally... Uh, many, I guess maybe by the seventh grade, I, I uh, part of a geometry class I was taking, we learned how to print um, uh, and mechanical drawing we were taking. And uh, that was a huge help for me. And um, so I don't know, it's just, uh, it's just the way you are. And uh, I have always... I'd like to watch people working, but all, there again, it was hard for me to pick up from people like carpenters and whatnot what they were doing because I would do it with my left hand and it just seemed awkward and backwards sometimes. So, and I, when I started playing music, uh, I started on a ukulele and um, uh that didn't seem, I picked it up naturally left-handed and it didn't seem to make any difference. It only has four strings. You, you don't pick a ukulele normally, uh, you, you strum it. So I've been playing the ukulele for maybe a year or more and when I got my first guitar and I picked that up backwards too and I thought maybe I should change the strings around it was a $12 guitar, and I I didn't even know enough to change the nut at the head of the strings where the strings go through these little slots. So the when I changed the strings, the big strings were sitting on top of a narrow slot, and the little strings were sitting in a big slot, and it rattled and made it... And I said, well, I don't, I'm not going to be Chet Atkins anyway. I'm going to be Hank Williams. And I, all he does is stand up there and look good and, <laughs> and strum the guitar. So I just left it. And I've played backwards ever since. And um, I've, so I've had to figure a few things out. When I started playing bluegrass with Bill Keith, you know, there are these, uh, what they call the G-run that Lester Flatt kind of came up with and Jimmy Martin. And... Most people played with a flat pick when that happened. Lester didn't, but uh, other people, Jimmy did. And I had to kind of pretend to make that G run, and I use a thumb pick. That's all I use is a thumb pick, no finger picks. And I, I have played in a lot of bluegrass bands, and I can kind of hold my own keeping rhythm. And... I can make the end of the G run, so you hear ba boom. Like that's all most people hear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go. That's the real run, and um, so um, I guess it just gives you a different way of looking at the world, and you you get you kind of get used to making things up uh, for yourself, uh, and it. A lot. It seems to work. Uh, a lot of it. Um, it. You can. There are some very good left-handed guitarists. Uh, a lot of blues guitarists. Albert King, um, and uh, Otis Rush, uh, and Elizabeth Cotton, who wrote Freight Train. Um, 
and Bill Staines, who lives around here, excellent finger picker. And um, but I just never, I, I I really like to play rhythm guitar, and um, it's something I'm pretty good at actually. And uh, so that does fine for me. Yeah. What was you, the question? I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, do you throw? Which hand do you throw with? Left. Left hand. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm. I write with my left, and throw and bat with my right. Uh huh. But otherwise, similarly, yeah. yeah. So your your brain is a little scrambled, I suppose. Yeah, and, I think so. Uh, but the, <laughs> us left-handers always like to say that all the geniuses are left-handed. Yeah. So, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that they have to figure things out in a different way. It, yeah, I Be think more original. Yeah, there is some kind of compensation. I remember one thing that was I've never liked learning how to tie knots. And I worked right. in the outdoor industry a lot, and you know, for, yeah. and people would always try to teach me, and I could never ever replicate what they were doing. Yeah. And then eventually, I figured out that part of it was it, there's sort of a left hand and right hand way to do it. And if I figured it out using my own hands, I would do it differently, but That's come up right. with the same knot, you know, in in, yeah. in mirror. And that was a good lesson. Yeah. <laughs> um, what music originally spoke to you and sort of brought you into wow this is something i want to do oh it was hill, what they called hillbilly music at the time i'd never heard anything like it i did listen as a kid i listened to a lot of classical music uh there was a classical music radio station in boston and i was sick a lot as a kid uh, and i was home a lot and and i listened to that station and i absorbed a lot of music that way I'm amazed at how much I did absorb without even realizing it. I did take piano lessons, but that wasn't fun for me, and it was uh, it didn't really it, it it I did learn how to read music from taking the piano lessons, so that was not wasted time, but uh it it didn't engage me really. And uh, I I never thought of playing classical music. I just seemed way beyond me. Uh, I did think about becoming a conductor, though, because uh, we, the kid, our school, we went in to see the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That was the first live music I ever saw, mm. the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That was very exciting. And the conductor, that seemed to be the job for me. You know, he stands up there and he looks good and he waves his baton around and gets all the applause and doesn't seem to have to play an instrument. <laughs> so uh, that's why I went about thinking about things. So, But the music that really engaged me was hillbilly music, and that's what it was called at the time. And it was a radio program in Boston called the Hayloft Jamboree, uh, it was on every night on the radio, and they had a disc jockey who played all the hits of the day, and this was in 1951, 52. So it would be now uh, considered a golden age of country music. Uh, Hank Williams was alive, Hank Snow, Hank Thompson, all Lefty Frizzell, all these artists that are considered the greatest uh, in country music, and it was all very much alive and they were having big hits so i was listening to that every every night and 50 uh, just before that record show 
there was a live broadcast of this group from West Virginia called the Confederate Mountaineers. And at that time, bluegrass didn't have a name. And they were just another form of hillbilly music. And But it was bluegrass. Uh, two brothers, Everett and B. Lilly, Everett played mandolin, B. played guitar. They both sang a banjo player named Don Stover and a fiddler named Tex Logan. And I heard that, and it was just amazing. Uh, I'd never heard anything like it, and I really liked it a lot right away. Um, and my own theory about it is it was my Irish uh, genes waking up because the music in its roots is... Um, the, from the settlers who settled in the Appalachians from uh, Ireland and Scotland. Uh, so uh, that's, that really got me started. And I started, um, I, didn't, I didn't think about playing the bluegrass music uh, as such. I really thought about playing the hillbilly music. Uh, and Hank Williams in particular really got to me. And um, my brother gave me a couple of albums of Hank Williams. They were 78s. And I learned every every song. And then I, I would hear whatever I heard on the radio. I discovered I could learn. Um, and my Uncle Jim gave me a ukulele. And I knew I didn't have to really be taught when to change a chord. And that's really a, a, a gift, I think. Some people have no idea when they need to change. And I did. I automatically knew I had to change a chord. And so then I was able to listen to something and then strum along, find the chords, and strum and then sing the song. So... I just started entertaining myself. And then I had three girl cousins, and that was nice. They seemed to think I was pretty cute, singing songs like Backstreet Affair, Your Cheating Heart, all these things I knew nothing about. <laughs> I, was, I was 13 or 14 years old. I didn't know anything about much of anything. And so I got started that way, and um, it really has stayed with me. <laughs> I've never gotten tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think my parents thought I was going to grow out of this. As I said, I got a guitar after about a year. A buddy of mine in school sold me this plywood guitar, and I started to play that. And um, then after I'd been playing that for just a few months, I was listening to the radio show, and on Saturday afternoon they had a live show from the radio station of people, local artists singing hillbilly songs. And um, two girls were on there, and they were really terrible. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm as good as they are. And I, and so I, I went in there the next Saturday and with my little guitar, my plywood guitar, and I was 16, it was 1954, and... Um, I auditioned for this guy who ran the show. And he said, okay. I sang a, a Hank Snow song and a Hank Williams song. And um, he said, okay, you want to be on the radio? I said, yeah, today. Okay. <laughs> 
So I was. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, that was good. There was a band. He assigned a band to back me up. They loaned me a real guitar, nice, nice guitar. And um, I sang my two songs, which were uh, Hank Williams' Honky Talk Blues and Hank Snow's Music Making Mama from Memphis. And they were all really nice to me, all the people there. They were all dressed up in cowboy outfits. I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't have one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But he said, well, come back next week. So I went, came back the next week. And then after that, he said, well, they did live shows Friday nights at a place called the John Hancock Hall. It seems about 1,500 people, pretty good-sized hall in Boston. He said, come down and play the Jamboree next Friday night. So I had to get some clothes then. I got my mother to buy me some powder blue pants and checkered shirt and a string tie. I don't have any pictures of this, yeah. <laughs> not a single one. And um, so that's what I did for the rest of the school year. My my friends all started calling me Tex. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was very exciting and totally unusual. I was going to a Latin school in Boston, Roxbury Latin School. It's the oldest school in the country, and they teach, you know, Latin and Greek and history and math and science and everything else. And uh, hillbilly music was not in the in the cards as far as I, my education was concerned. And one of the, there was a kid who played in this band, Cappy Paxton and the Trailsman was their name of the band. And uh, he was about my age. And he said, uh, well, why, why don't you play with us all the time? And I said, well, I can't. I'm going to school. And he looked at me like, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't wait to get out of school. Yeah. He was out of school. He was ditching school. He wasn't going to school. Yeah. He didn't see the need. <laughs> that was just like I they couldn't even conceive of it. And certainly my family couldn't conceive of it either, but never was a real possibility. So, but I got I got that started there. Never lost the bug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I one of the lines that I wrote down that I really liked was you uh, talking about Hank Williams. You said the sadness in his voice went straight to my teenage heart. I wanted to sing like him. I wanted to be that sad. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. I. I I, I, you know, <clears throat> there's a romance about all of this too, and um, where I lived in Dedham, Massachusetts, was a very uninspiring place to live. It was nothing wrong with it; it just was dull, nothing going on really. It was very exciting, and uh, Hank Williams opened up all this emotional stuff inside me. I mean, his songs, some of them were funny and some of them were sad, but either way, it was, it was something that I hadn't encountered. Mm -hmm. And um, it was obviously something I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and teenagers, you know, of course you want, you, you want your heart to be broken almost every day. And, uh, 
you have a rich imagination as far as girls are concerned, and or women, girls have rich imaginations as far as boys are concerned, or whatever. We all have rich imaginations when we're teenagers, and uh, the hormones are flowing, and uh, you want this in your life. You want some action, and about this time, on the major, on the pop music scene, black music, this is when black music came through. Fats Domino and Little Richard and all those artists had just broke it open, and Elvis Presley. It just broke open a dam of restraint that had built up uh, around kids' lives, and that was it, you know, and there was all kinds of preachers railing against this. It was going to send us all to hell, and they were probably right. <laughs> and we wanted to go there in the worst way. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a very exciting time musically um, in the 50s. It was very dull in the society at large. Dwight Eisenhower was the president, and he was a nice person, but... It, and there were some not nice people around as well, uh, fighting communism. And Joe McCarthy, this guy from Wisconsin. Um, but it was a pretty buttoned-down era as far as the society was concerned. And this music, and as it turns out, the hillbilly music was also subversive <laughs> at opening people like me up. And what happened... As in time, that hillbilly show went away, and what I substituted with was folk music, which I stumbled onto in a record store in Boston just by accident. It was a bookstore, but in the back they had some records, some jazz records and some folk music records. And so I bought a few. I bought... Uh, Lead Belly, Big Bill Brunzi, some Southern Appalachian music, just whatever struck my fancy. And that that music really also spoke to me. Uh, and it was, I learned a lot of Lead Belly songs and uh, some songs from the Southern Appalachians that were pre-bluegrass, you know, that ballads and uh just other kinds of songs from the mountains and it was all kind of exotic to me and romantic in a way it was a world i had had no experience with there were no black people living in dead of massachusetts and no hillbillies either <laughs> uh and so it all of this was a way of opening me up uh to unknown worlds and one thing my parents did do for us uh, was to encourage us to get out in the world and be around people that weren't like us i don't think they had envisioned it quite this way but we were irish catholics both sides of the family my father and my mother and in Boston, that was a very strong identity, a very strong community. But my mother found it oppressive to live around all her Irish relatives. And we, that, she decided to move, live in Dedham 
where there wasn't another Irish family there. There were Catholics, but they were Italians. And so and in our neighborhood, there were Protestants and Christian scientists and people that didn't go to church and us. And so we were uh, different in that where we lived. And I think that was another help to me uh, that I and my brother and my sisters, we were all encouraged to meet and respect other people. And uh, so getting to know the Lilly brothers, I got to know them and become friends with them and lifelong friends. Uh, and uh, I think that was one of the greatest uh, benefits of this strange musical education I was getting for myself. I was getting it all by myself. Nobody else was around that knew anything about it. I, I didn't know anybody who, who was doing this except me. As it turns out, there are people all over the country doing this because people my age, we all exchange, well, who did you listen to? Well, we all listen to Hank Williams. We all listen to Fats Domino. We all listen to this music uh, in our separate places from coast to coast. And, um, but we all thought we were the only ones doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah. So um, that's been, a, I think, a great bonus for me to get into this musical life because I have met people from all over the place, uh, extremely talented people, very generous people, people that have very little education but are self-educated and self-motivated and being around people like that is i think really good for you yeah i agree <laughs> yeah. um when so you're talking about like all these disparate people coming to the same sort of realizations of like oh this music is reaching them but you were felt kind of isolated is what i'm hearing in your own musical yeah. education and when i'm just wondering maybe already answered when you were um doing that show at the big hall and, and the radio show but when did that when did the sense that these other people started to exist and you got to start collaborating with them happen? It wasn't until um, I went to Amherst College in western Massachusetts. And I was, uh, once the, the, that hillbilly show, the radio station changed its format is what happened. And it just evaporated overnight, really. Uh I, I went away for, went down to the seashore where we had a little cottage in the summertime. And I, I picked berries all summer long and worked by the side of the road selling vegetables so I could save up enough money to get a Martin guitar, just like Hank's. And I did. But when I got back in the fall, the show was gone. The, 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 everything was gone. Um, and there I was. I had my guitar, but I had nothing to do with it, really, <laughs> except play for myself. And that's what I did from late 54 until... 1959, when I met Bill Keith in college. And Bill had come from a background not unsimilar to my own in that he, he went to Exeter Academy, then he went to Amherst. His whole family had done this, his very old New England family. And um, 
so he was going down to, to going to college like he was supposed to go, and I was going to college like I was supposed to go. It's just the thing you're supposed to do. And because I'd gone to Latin school, I kept up my studies in Greek and whatnot. And Bill was studying French, <laughs> and but he had just discovered he, he had played um, ban- for tenor banjo in a Dixieland band in high school in, at Exeter. And he had graduated to a five-string banjo like Pete Seeger played, a long-neck five-string banjo, and he had Pete Seeger's instruction book. And on the very last page was a th- thing on Earl Scruggs playing and a, a recommendation to buy an album <clears throat> of Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, which Bill did. And that's what he was doing when I first met him. And I said, well, I I know someone put us together. Somebody said, well, because I would get my guitar out. I was in a fraternity at college, go down in the basement, have a beer, and sing some songs for my classmates. That was all I was doing. I wasn't doing any performing. And somebody told me, that there's this kid in you know, the class behind you that you should meet. And I... So we met, Bill and I met, and then I said, well, I, I could dig up some of those songs. I, I knew about the Lily Brothers and Don Stover, and I told him about Don Stover. I said, I'll take you to... They, the Lily Brothers never left Boston. They stayed and played there in these hillbilly bars for 18 years, a place called the Hillbilly Ranch in Boston next to the Trailway Station in an area called the Combat Zone. <laughs> and that's what they did and that's how they made a living it was be- it beat working in the coal mines in west virginia so i took bill in to meet don stover and we started playing together just to get together we weren't performing anywhere but we were gradually building up a repertoire of stuff some folk songs that i had dug up and and uh some bluegrass songs uh, some songs I'd learned from the Lily Brothers, and then I started listening to Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and Bill Monroe and Jimmy Martin, and these other really great artists. And um, so we gradually, in the course of a year or so, year and a half, we we worked up a, a, enough of a repertoire that we could perform. And as it happened this promoter from Boston showed up in Amherst. He he wanted to put Odetta on at UMass, and, which is also in Amherst. And he needed an organization, campus organization, to put it on. So we formed, at his instigation, the Pioneer Valley Folk Song Society. And it's actually still going. Wow. Myself, Bill Keith, uh, Taj Mahal, and Buffy St. Marie were going to UMass. And two other kids from Amherst, Jesse Auerbach and Rick Lee, we started that thing just so we could put Odetta on at Amherst. Well, Manny heard us play, me and Bill, and he liked us. And he had opened a folk club in Boston. And he said, well, you can come and play at my club. And so that was our first job after we gradu- I graduated from Amherst, 1960. We played a place, this place, the Ballad Room, opening up for an, an artist named Charlotte Daniels, and that got us going. Our first paying gig, and 
We went to the Newport Folk Festival. We just got, we started really eating it up. And but Bill was behind me in college, so he had to go back for one more year. And I was got to graduate school at Harvard, and I had to keep my nose to the grindstone, so I wasn't doing much. But in the winter time, Manny Greenhill actually called me and said, uh, "Would you like to play the Dartmouth Winter Carnival up in Hanover?" And I said, "Yeah." I, I, I he said he said they'll give you a hundred dollars. I said, well, have, what? I said, have they ever even heard us? He said, no, but do you want to do it or not? <laughs> I couldn't believe somebody would pay us $100. Yeah. And by God, we did it. And um, they, we were the opening act for Joan Baez. Joan was, you know, and we had no idea at the time. We just didn't know that this thing was really taking off. The place was packed. It was 1030 on a Saturday morning, Webster Hall over at Dartmouth, and uh, in a blizzard. It was full, packed. Wow. <laughs> and they gave us a great reception. We thought we were great. They thought they were, we were great. And they thought Joan Baez was fantastic. I mean, they just went crazy over her. And a year later, she's on the cover of Time. I mean, this thing happened really fast. And all of a sudden, we were in the folk world. And it was really cooking. You know, things were starting to really take off, and I was still trying to go to school. Bill graduated from school, and then he came to Cambridge, and we started playing at this place, the Club 47, a little coffee house where Joan had started. And and we formed a band with uh, another player named Joe Val and his friend Herb Applin. And last year, or two years ago, Bill Keith was inducted into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. And last year, Joe Val was. So two of our bandmates are in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. <laughs> you just can't even believe this, how this could happen. Yeah. So it's been amazing. And the, the Club 47 had a... You had a longer tenure there in different roles, right? We, I did. Yeah. Um, once uh, I... My academic career finally crashed, and I did get a Fulbright out of it. I went to Greece for a year, and that was fantastic. And Bill, uh, we got together when we got together with Joe Val and Herb Applin in 1962. Uh, the Club 47 was really hopping. Uh, it was uh, Tom Rush, the Queskin Jug Band was starting. Jeff Muldar, Maria Muldar. Uh, it was very exciting. Every night we were down at this place. Everyone was playing music all the time and learning from each other. We were all educating each other as far as the kind of music we liked and knew a lot about. And so between us all, we, we covered quite a range of music. And it was very exciting. Uh, so um, uh, then I went to Greece, Bill through a number of almost accidents, uh, got to be heard by Bill Monroe and, and was invited to join his band, the Bluegrass Boys, on the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, just amazing. We, we just, that was in 1963. He'd only been playing the banjo three or four years. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, he just changed the way everybody played the banjo. He came up with a different style of playing and opened a lot of doors for a musical invention on the banjo. So 
uh, he he went to work with Monroe. I went to Greece, and then when I came back, we teamed up with uh, Peter Rowan and um, worked with him. And then he went to play with Bill Monroe, and eventually the fellow running the club, this coffee house, the Club 47, it was like a clubhouse, really. We were just all there all the time. And whether we were playing or not, we would just hung out there. And uh, the fellow running it, a guy named Byron Lord Leonardos, wonderful Greek-American from Cambridge, he had done it for three years and done a great job, and he was tired, and he wanted to stop. So I said, "Well, if you show me how to do it, I'll, I'll how to I'll take over from you." And it was perfect for me because my academic career was done, and so he taught me how to you know make coffee and tea and uh, soda drinks and um, how to book the artists and how to make a calendar like he was making these beautiful calendars and show me how to do them and. Uh, run a waitress and staff and run a place. And I did that uh, from 65 to the end of 67. And then I was tired. <laughs> and I switched gears and I wound up doing a few other things. I produced a jazz festival in New Orleans and then I went to wor work for Albert Grossman who managed a lot of people, Bob Dylan and the band and Janis Joplin and all these people. And he was building a studio in Woodstock, New York, and asked me if I'd like to come up there and run it for him. I said, sure, I would like to come up there and run it for you. And uh, so I did that. But I was playing music kind of on the side. But I, after, I, I look at it now, and I, it was almost 10 years of working these kind of managerial jobs. I worked for the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals as well as both tour manager, stage manager, and also I booked the ta talent for the Folk Festival. And I look at almost nine, nine years went by, and I was had when I started playing, you know, managing the club and... Then I'm managing this record studio, and finally, I said, "I got I have to get back to something more creative for me." And I blew off quite a bit of steam for the next two years, and I wound up in Nashville, and that's where I needed to go. It was the right place for me to go, and I lucked out and came in contact with a great man there named Jack Clement, and. That that sealed it for me. It opened all the doors and enabled me to stay there for a long time. You're running out of juice. No, we're there. good. We just came unplugged for a second. Oh, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> At any rate, it's uh, we were mentioning. You you don't know where things are going to take you, and you. I think I've always been open to taking things as they come. What's put in front of me? Yeah, say yes. <laughs> uh, and I think you make your own opportunities sometimes, but you have to be ready when an opportunity comes your way. And that's that's kind of the lesson uh, for me that I was 
I was ready when these when things somebody asked me to do something. I said, "Well, I'll figure it out. I'll. You might not know exactly how to do it, but you will figure it out." Jack Clement got me into engineering recording. I said, "No, I I, I don't do that. I I I don't think I'm I'm that kind of person." And he said, "No, you you can do it. It's easy. It's not hard." And um, he said, "You got good ears. You know what things are supposed to sound like." I said, "Oh, okay," and and, uh, and so I took him up on that challenge. I considered it a challenge, and I took him up on it. And by God, I did learn enough to start recording people. And as it turned out, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was. <laughs> and um, if he hadn't insisted that I do that. I would have missed out on like 25 years of working in a in the studio. I, I I would have missed it, and if I'd said no, I don't think so. You know, be too timid and afraid. So uh, that's kind of I think maybe being left-handed helps you there. You know, where you do have to sort of um, accept these challenges and be willing to walk out there without a net and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And there seems to be a, like in, in, in reading your story, you know, there's a lot of serendipity involved, yeah. um, both in the musical world and with you and, and the loves of your life. And, yeah. Um, and, and seems like you go by intuition a lot too. I do. And I think most, I think people would be better off if they did. Mm-hmm. Now, circumstances sometimes prevent you from from really following your heart as much as you might like. But um, I didn't have a family, which would I would have made different had to make some different choices if I had a family to support. I I inherited a family kind of late in life and. At that by that point, I was able to help support them, but um, I would have had to do some things differently, probably if I if I had a family to support, because the music business is pretty shaky sometimes. But as I found out from other people that were in other lines of work, everything's shaky. You can't really count on anything. very much my mother was always worried oh jimmy this is so insecure and i had some cousins that did the 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 kind of corporate thing in new york one of them committed suicide a couple of them became alcoholics and it wasn't that wasn't i and i told this to my mother i said is that security what's security anyway and I think it's not a bad idea to learn how to live on the ground. And I have spent my last dollar several times. Mm-hmm. And I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm able to... I know how to grow food. I know how to make a few things. And uh, I, I'm just not afraid of... I think a lot of people have gotten a little bit... Um, intimidated by things a little bit and uh uh, that's not a a great way to to live life i don't think if you have some confidence in yourself and you've got your wits about you and have some abilities 
I think you can trust yourself to to do okay. Mm-hmm. You might not get rich, but getting rich, I think, is highly overrated. Some real idiots yeah. are very rich, <laughs> yeah. mentioning no names. but um, And some very nice people are very rich, too. It's irrelevant, really. I think it's being rich can be good if you... If it enables you to help other people, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if getting rich is just for yourself, accumulating stuff, I don't see the point myself. So it's never been a goal of mine. I like to, I I like to make money as much as the next guy, and and I have made some, and I have also not made some. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I've spent all the money I had, and sometimes I've managed to keep some. So. It's um, the best thing for me was that, especially when when Jack Clement got me to learn how to engineer like from the ground up. I believe in what I do now. I can do this. I I understand the process, and I'm able to communicate with other people, other engineers, or whatever. Now it's all digital, which is not my world. I'm an analog guy. And I was too old. That thing started happening when I was 60. So yeah. I I accept that I'm never going to really be a, a really good at that. So I have to hire people that are and talk to them. But I, the process isn't different, really, as far as I'm concerned, as far as recording. And uh, that's what I love to do. I love to make records and with music. But the style of making records has changed a lot. And my style isn't really what people are doing these days. That's fine. I, uh, when I do work, though, I really enjoy it. And um, it's, it's, But it, it gives me confidence in what I do, that I know what I'm doing, and I know when it's good, and I know when it's not good. And I can trust my judgment. And uh, that gives you a, a good feeling inside. I think what when you don't feel good, and this has happened to me, uh, is when you look good to other people. And I'm capable of that, looking good. And you don't feel that it's real inside. That's not a good place to be. And I had to kind of get uh, serious with myself at one point uh, about that. It just, okay, stop looking good to everybody else. Forget about everybody else for a while and just try to figure out who you are and what you do. And uh, that took me some time. And uh, I had to kind of pull the plug on a lot of things. I had been married. I was stopped work. I stopped working. I stopped everything. And just and I had to. I went to this house we had in the in the sea near the seashore that my mother was going to sell. I spent a couple of winters there by the seashore. <laughs> Nobody around. Every call I made was a long distance call, and. I had to spend some time with myself, and that that's a good thing to do, and I'm glad I did it, because after that, things really started happening mm. in a solid way for me. There were a lot of things that had happened before, and if you looked at my resume, oh, you know, the Club 47, the Newport festivals, this, that, the other thing, it looked pretty good, and it was good, but... 
it, it didn't feel good inside. Mm-hmm. And I had to deal with that. And uh, there was a fair amount of drink involved and a lot of behavior that didn't look good as far as other people were concerned. But I just had to go do this, and I did it. And that's that's uh, that was in my 30s. And when I went to Nashville, I didn't tell a lot of people all that stuff I'd done. I hardly ever mentioned it. They found out about it sort of later, but I was just going to have to start all over again. And that was a very smart thing for me to do. That was the way to go because everybody understood. They liked me and they found they liked my music and liked the way I was coming along and willing to listen and learn. I kept my eyes and ears open, standing around. Jack Clement had a publishing company. He had a recording studio. He'd done a lot of things, and I just was observing a lot of stuff. I learned a lot about publishing from him and the man that ran his publishing company. Uh, And I learned a lot about songs. I learned a lot about rhythm guitar playing. I I just learned every day when I went there. And it looked like I was just hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you have to do a bit of hanging around in life, I think. Uh and and just keep your eyes and ears open and learn for a while and and see what's what people do and how they do it. And I was in with a great group of people, great songwriters and great and good engineers and and everybody had a good time yeah uh you know really fun we had fun every day but we were learning all the time so that was that was the best thing that ever happened to me and so i i just came along and eventually i was uh, confident enough to start my own publishing company and with three other people and it turned out to be a good thing to do. A good, it was successful, and when we kept up our, having fun and and doing it the way we thought it should be done, not the way other people thought it should be done, uh, we would rec- we would help songwriters that sometimes other people wouldn't see the possibilities in, and sometimes we'd record songs as producers that other people didn't see the possibilities in. And all of a sudden, these songs were very successful. So you can't be following trends or trying to figure out the market, all that stuff. When music, when I, I kind of pulled back from Nashville was when marketing people started taking over the record labels instead of music people. Yeah. Nashville had been built by music people, people like uh, Jack Clement, by o- um, uh, Chet Atkins, by o- Owen Bradley. All of these people played music and all wrote songs too. And they knew how they knew how to work at everything in the musical world. And they trusted their judgment. And they tried things. And if something didn't work, it wasn't a disaster. They hadn't spent a half a million dollars on something. Like the Everly Brothers came out of this mentality. And Chet Atkins is trying different sounds with them. And 
different guitar amplifiers and different this and different that. And it didn't cost any money. And if it, if it worked, but it did work, <laughs> those records sell to this day. And, uh, but eventually, uh, like a lot of places, uh, marketing, uh, corporations merged, Sony and RCA and uh, everybody merged. You only, you're almost down to one label now. And then they started second-guessing stuff, and uh, the musical people were kind of out, out of the loop. And that's when I, I pulled out of there, really, as far as our company was concerned, I said. And the, the other thing was the digital uh, revolution where you could get music for free and I didn't see how that was going to work <laughs> for the songwriters or the artists uh, um, uh, if everything's free yeah. <laughs> uh, so those two things the marketing uh, takeover and, and the digital revolution just said i said i'm not going to stick around for this because i was too old i was too old to figure out the digital thing if i'd been 30 i would have stuck stuck it out probably but yeah. i couldn't all right well so this is this is the song that really um i th I don't know when you say, oh, it's his best song or whatever, but for me, it's his best song, and just something about it um, is is so deep for me. It's, not, it's a simple song. Lights up a purple sky. 
And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Oh, as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome. Thank you. 